0: Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weightloss. That's PlushCare.com slash weightloss. PlushCare.com slash weightloss. You're on Team Human, clearing a path for conscious beings in an automated landscape. This is where we challenge the assumptions underlying our markets, our media, and our machines, and look towards sustainable solutions, social connection, and re-enchantment with the natural world. Human awareness is not a computational phenomenon. We are real. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Professor Richard Barbrook, social historian, labor activist, and technology critic. What
2: we don't want to be told is when we we'll are being selling our wage labor to create surplus value for the capitalist class, so somehow it is you know, creating the Gaia mind. No, it isn't.
0: it's capitalism, mate. Best known for his breakthrough essay, The California Ideology, Richard will be deconstructing the current techno-political landscape and sharing with us new paths to resistance. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. You're on Team Human. Just a year ago, proposing a concept like universal basic income, where everyone is guaranteed a minimum subsidy from the government, could practically get me laughed off the stage at a tech industry conference. It seemed to go against every fundamental tenet of the creative destruction characterizing the digital economy. Don't reward the obsolete. Force them to evolve. If people lose their jobs to automation, they should be retrained for new ones. From the perspective of Silicon Valley's executives, only a hippie or a communist would suggest that people be given a livable wage simply for being alive. But for me... Having just published Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus about the lopsided returns of the digital economy and all the anger that it was generating among San Franciscans displaced by gentrification, a guaranteed minimum income seemed to an obvious solution to a problem first posed back in the 1950s by the inventor of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener. What would happen when the robots he was enabling would be able to till the fields and render human labor obsolete? Would we humans seize the opportunity to lay down on the beach and sip lemonade while our mechanical servants provided for our needs? Or would a paucity of employment opportunities throw our entire economy into chaos with humans perpetually competing for work against their more efficient and tireless mechanical peers? In fact, we already live in a highly automated world filled with technologies capable of producing more stuff than we can possibly use. Think of it. In America, companies compete for consumers, and dispose of the stuff they can't sell. Many of us have storage units for the possessions we can't fit into our homes. We're living in such abundance, with such a supply-side glut, that right now we're tearing down houses that are in foreclosure and burning surplus agriculture. By our current way of thinking, we can't just let people live in those houses or eat the food because they don't have jobs through which to earn the income to pay for them. But consider that logic for just a minute. We don't need to employ people in order to get some work done. We don't need more lawnmowers or vehicles. We'll need even fewer once we start sharing them with simple apps or uh, common pools of some kind. No, we need to create jobs for people so that we can justify letting them enjoy the stuff we already have in abundance. So, in such an environment, simply letting people have the things they need or a guaranteed income entitling them to the basics like food, housing, and healthcare, it seems an obvious solution. If people want luxuries beyond that, they can compete for work or get more entrepreneurial. It's an idea that was first floated in America by none other than Richard Nixon in the form of a negative income tax for the poor. And as I explained in the book, study after study has shown that a guaranteed income doesn't lead to laziness. The financial safety it affords actually leads individuals to take greater creative risks. And that's why I should have been glad this past spring when developers at Uber began to ask me about universal basic income. I'd just delivered a talk in which I blame the company for extracting all the value out of the taxicab market without any real intent of making it sustainable. In my view, And this is the real view. They were simply using the cab market as a beachhead in their bigger battle to monopolize all transportation and logistics, just like Amazon used books as a foothold into retail with little regard to the effect on authors or publishers. And to my surprise, the Uber people acknowledged the impact of their company and then brought up UBI, Universal Basic Income, as a possible solution. Wouldn't that let us keep going? One employee asked me. So while I should have been thrilled, that the workers and leaders of some of our biggest Silicon Valley firms, from these folks at, at Uber to similar audiences I've met at Facebook and Google, that they finally jumped aboard the universal basic income bandwagon, I don't know, my encounters with these people so far. But this new breed of UBI advocate has convinced me that they're doing it with much less altruistic ambitions and that their plans will lead to entirely less benevolent outcomes. They understand the basic math undermining their long-term business plans. If they automate all the jobs, who will be left to buy their services? Even the data that companies such as Google mine from our otherwise free online activities will be worthless if we have no money to spend. The penniless have no consumer behavior to exploit. So it's as if these firms want to be able to destroy people's jobs in the name of bottom line efficiency while still depending on those very people they've unemployed to serve as consumers for their products. Why let joblessness impede corporate growth? If the people have no wage wealth to extract, then let government print money for them to spend. So I'll admit it's gratifying to hear a multi-billionaire like Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg echoing the words in my books as he asks graduating Harvard students to figure out a universal basic income strategy for America. But in light of the rest of Facebook's priorities and behavior... His request comes off as utterly clueless and a little more than late. It seems less like a comprehensive economic vision than a guilt-inspired effort to compensate for the social impact of his own businesses, much like his intention to donate 99% of his Facebook shares to charity over the course of his life. If you have to donate 99% of your winnings, maybe you took too much to begin with. It's as if by dropping out of college himself to pursue his social media startup, he missed the courses in civics, economics, liberal arts, and sociology that may have prevented him and his company from becoming part of America's economic problem rather than its solution. And I'd have an easier time accepting his proposal at face value if Facebook weren't spending so much effort avoiding paying tax on its massive profits. Where is universal basic income supposed to come from if not the profits that the companies have made by cutting out human labor in the first place? Likewise, the Uber employees I spoke with sounded genuinely concerned about the many drivers they hoped to replace with robot vehicles. They were aware of the irony of Uber drivers being used to train the algorithms that would soon drive cars without human participation— and they hope that universal basic income could somehow solve the joblessness problem that they were themselves creating. But underlying all of these second thoughts and compensatory strategies is a short-sighted faith in the inevitability of technology's conquest over mankind. By focusing single-mindedly on the efficiency of his code and algorithms, the technophiles of Silicon Valley have engendered a business culture that values speed and efficiency over everything else. Yet it's only in such an environment that robots win out over humans. Sure, a robot may be able to do my job better than I do, but since when are jobs the only way for people to contribute value to our society and economy? In fact, employment as we know it is a rather recent artifact of the industrial age. It only came into being when small businesses were outlawed by the establishment of the chartered monopoly, or what we now think of as the corporation. Only sanctioned monopolies were allowed to function in particular industries, and former small business owners were forced to travel to cities to work as employees of larger companies. So instead of creating and exchanging value directly, people worked for an hourly wage, time became money, And the job became a way of measuring value as some function of productivity per hour. Of course machines are better at that. That's why, to me anyway, it's ironic to hear so much anxiety about robots and algorithms taking away people's jobs and the difficulty we're going to have inventing new jobs for the displaced. The solution may be less a matter of how to find jobs for people than challenging the underlying assumption that jobs are themselves necessary for the vast majority of people in a healthy economy. Who wants a job anyway? We want stuff. We want to exchange value and create meaning. But jobs were not invented for that purpose neither is industrial efficiency the best north star for a human society and economy transitioning from an industrial to a digital age. Instead of exploring the possibilities unleashed by digital technology to retrieve the independent value creation and peer-to-peer networks repressed by early corporatism, we're doubling down on the industrial age values of growth and efficiency as well as its willingness to externalize the worst of its effects, we argue more about saving jobs that computers and smartphones may replace than ending the slave labor that goes into their mining and manufacture. Were we to approach technology development from the perspective of human welfare rather than looking at such problems after the fact, we may come to realize that efficiencies for the bottom line often translate into grave consequences for everyone else. Adam Smith argued that in any healthy economy, we need to embrace all three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. Right now, Silicon Valley recognizes the importance of only capital. Investors get a seat at the table in the boardroom, while the places and workers being exploited do not. That's how an otherwise promising digital economy instead accelerates both climate change and the disenfranchisement of labor. Only capital scales infinitely, the way digital platforms demand. The real world cannot compete. Maybe we need more people making this stuff, at higher wages and less efficiently, in order to take the planet and its people into consideration. Throwing the money after the fact may be better than nothing, but it's not a sustainable solution to the problem of digital companies conceived on the presumption of extractive perpetual growth, they will still necessarily take more than they give. Please don't forget to join our ranks as deliberately as you can and support this show and the people working to bring it to you by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support that will bring you to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash TeamHuman, where you can become a member of the show, get your signed membership card, access to our Slack channel where you can suggest guests and topics, discuss the show and its ideas with other members of the team, get free premium, signed books, access to special audio, video, works in progress, and most of all, one another. I'm LA Kaufman and I'm on Team Human. I'm Zelviv. I'm on Team Human. My name is Walter Kern, and I'm on Team Human.
2: I'm Sylvia Zer, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena, and I'm on Team Human.
0: We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Hi, this is Stephen. Before today's interview, a brief producer's note. Today's show was recorded in London and comes to us thanks to our friend Luke Robert Mason
1: from Virtual Futures. Check out virtualfutures.co.uk to learn more about their work. Thanks, Luke. Now on with the show.
0: Today's guest, Richard Barbrook, is probably best known for his breakthrough essay, The California Ideology which first exposed and critiqued the libertarian underbelly of our supposedly free-to-be-you-and-me internet. His book, Imaginary Futures, looks at the way fantasies of the future have been used to steer society toward particular, usually market-based, and exploitative outcomes. So you wrote the California ideology really 18 months into the Wired Revolution, and the wired revolution came really three or four years into the actual internet revolution and successfully recontextualized what I saw as a people's evolutionary beautiful Siberian leap yeah. into connected consciousness into just a a reactionary uh, uh a, a reactionary effort to prevent digital technology or networking from changing the uh, established power power well, structures.
2: I think I think that's. That was the European reading of it. So we were told that we were anti-American, which I thought was quite shocked about. I then wrote another one slacking off the Deleuze-Guitari right. called The Holy Fools, just to sort of balance it out. Because I don't think, I think, you know, we were what we were trying to say, there's lots of positive things about American counterculture in the 1960s, you know, you know, whether it's surfing or organic food or LSD or or you know not not the Grateful Dead but <laughs> maybe, maybe some soul music we could go we could go down uh, but you know so there were lots of positive things about it right you know anti-racist anti-sexism anti homophobia it's just that they what they've done is they would taken that imagery the basically the the look and feel of it and then used it for a corporate agenda and the reason why I you know, wh- wh- why I was aware of this. As I said, I was doing my doctorate in uh, the early 1980s, and they gave me some money to spend a summer in the Bay Area, which I basically did research onto 1920s American Radio and Berkeley University's library. <laughs> That's what I did. But when I'm there, I met lots of people. who first were people who were involved in the 60s rebellion, um, and then people who worked in Silicon Valley. Um, I did remember meeting this guy who'd done acid with Steve Jobs <laughs> uh-huh. and and told me how, basically how he was a sellout. <laughs> yeah. And there were lots a, of people, there were lot yeah. of people like that, that you met who actually had kept the faith, you know, they'd stayed politically on the left. Uh, they were doing jobs like being school teachers or working in the health service or if they were running companies, they were sort of very, you know, more like co-ops than they're capitalists, and so they. But they. So they had made large sums of money. So they were. They. 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 They hadn't bought into this other side. And what I thought was weird was meeting people who had been, I know, tear gassed by Ronald Reagan's police and then you have uh, you have this sort of strange mixture of on one hand they they want to say like howard Ringer wants to say we're coming out of the hippie counterculture but on the other hand the people very people who literally in the case of Reagan, sent tanks against them mm-hmm. uh, it, they've embraced their economics and it's that's that strange thing where you get uh, social liberalism with economic liberalism and that and that is you know it has been probably for the last 30 years a really strange mixture i mean 80s here 1980s in england you know margaret thatcher was an economic liberal and neo-liberal but she was hating gays you know she you know passed homophobic laws was you know they didn't like black people they didn't like women's rights Et cetera, et cetera, and so they, they were they were morally conservative and economically liberal. And what's interesting about the Californian ideology, as we called it, is that combination of social liberalism and economic liberalism, which has actually become more pervasive in the last thirty years, and certainly the last twenty years since we wrote that that pamphlet. You know,
0: and it was more obvious. You know, back in the day when, say, uh, uh, Pepsi Cola. Uh, you know, co opts the the hippie peace and love movement with, I'd like to teach the world to sing. It's a little bit more obvious that, okay, here's a corporation that's co opting these hippie memes in order to sell the, sugar the, water. The
2: revolution is available on CBS Records. Right. With the MC5 with a mixture of guns and guitars. Yeah. <laughs> that famous post. A friend of mine, I remember, he used to have it up on his wall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but then, you know, and, and it sounded almost like you were talking about a, a friend of mine who was maybe fourth employee at Apple, Dan Kotke, who was one of the people who used to trip with um, uh, Steve Jobs, and then left the company very early on, you know, for shortly after the Mac came out, left, because it's like, oh, my gosh, this is turning into this other thing. Uh, well, it's like,
2: Leif. you think of like someone like Lee Felsenstein, mm-hmm. you know, where really where it comes from, home computing you know he wants to create he basically wants to liberate the computer for the left so when i mean they thought there was going you know the american system was going to collapse and in the in the sort of mad max universe we'd all need our own little personal computers to survive
0: Right, or richard stallman yeah. of of new who yeah, uh who hates uh the open source movement because that's really just another form of uh you know shared capitalism or something rather than uh, anything genuinely distributed. But I said that, I, so there is that. You, so you can have that sort of moral
2: absolutist position. But I think we were trying to steer between the two, mm-hmm. in, So, so you, not to reject it, you know, but just uh, say, because we actually love this technology. We were actually teaching people to learn how to, you know, make software, which they then would sell to advertising agencies for Olympic <laughs> on things like this. So, you know, we, we were operating within the system, you know, so, but, so we like the technology and with the possibilities of it are amazing. It's just well, what we disliked was being sold this as the ideology of it. You know, if you just say, well, this is the reality is you've got to pay the rent, you need to put food on the table, you're going to have to work for the man at some point. You know, you might try and set up your own stuff and that's really good and people should try to do that. But you know, but what we don't want to be told is when we're we'll being selling our wage labour to create surplus value for the capitalist class. so somehow it is, you know, creating the Gaia mind. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's capitalism, mate. Just shiny new, you know, 1990s or... 21st century capitalist or whatever it is.
0: But isn't there, or at least wasn't there an alternative? You know, when it was, you know, Fraser Clark of Evolution Magazine and Howard Rheingold and the the, the crazy little lefty hippie psychedelic users who were, you know, g- writing fractal programs on Sun computers before Wired Magazine came and declared the attention economy and the long boom and that the Internet, rather than being the... the uh, uh, Rather than being the enemy of capitalism, which many of us thought it was, Wired said, don't worry, it's the savior of capitalism. Now you can invest in this. Wasn't that a turn, a, a, a detour? Wasn't that a turn for the worse? Can't that be corrected in some way? That's the way I felt that the California ideology that you wrote was exposing this, was exposing Wired magazine and Wall Street's co-option of the internet for uh, uh, an entirely but it was uh, never, purpose. but it never was unco-opted.
2: You know, I wrote this book, Imaginary Futures, about the origins of the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you know, you know, and the, the the myth is that it was founded by hippies, but he wasn't. It is actually all these dodgy people who my father, my sorry, my father was on the right wing of the Labour Party, and knew people like Walt Rostow, who was National Security Advisor to Johnson, and murdered quite a large number of people in Vietnam indirectly. <laughs> but also, he knew Daniel Bell and all these sorts of people. They say so, what well, I call them the Cold War Left because they were the left. They're in the Democratic Party. But they're, they're, and at home they were quite socially progressive, you know, civil rights and first environmental legislation in America under the Kennedy and Johnson. Institute. But as soon as you go abroad, they, they're, they're genocidal, you know, there's carpet bombing the Vietnamese peasantry for daring to resist American occupation. And so that, that I find interesting. And so the internet comes out of this comp- Cold War competition. Because, you know, the the Russians sent the first man into space in 1957 and the first woman into space, you know, uh, and all this, this satellite man, woman. And then the Americans go, what's the next thing after the space race? And what the CIA identified was the Internet, actually, in the early 1960s, because the Russians were talking about building cybernetic communism. And they, they report this, and so they set up this thing called ARPA. And ARPA, what's ARPA supposed to do? It's supposed to stop the second Sputnik, second Yuri Gagarin, humiliation of the United States by the Soviet Union. And they identify the next point of humiliation is the Internet, building a computer network society. And so this myth... I always thought that the myth of the information society, or what you would call your Gaia mind thing, came first, and then the internet came afterwards. But actually, in a way, you know, in a way that you have to understand, it goes much further back. It goes back to this Cold War confrontation between America and Russia over who owns the future. And if you identify the future as the network society, yeah, then the two people have they they're racing to develop it. All that way, why did they spend all that money developing the internet? I never really, I never, never bought this thing about it's to survive a nuclear war. Right. Why would you replace cheap, reliable switches with expensive, flaky mainframes in the early '60s to create a communications to survive a nuclear? I mean, mainframes would fall over if you sneezed on them, let alone if you dropped a megaton bomb down. Right. So it was obviously that was just hokum. It's to do with this vision of who owned the future. And the fact that the Soviet Union abandoned trying to build the internet because they got scared that what it was going to do. And the Americans, it just kept this bureaucratic uh, inevitability. They just poured all this money into it until eventually it it escaped from the laboratory. So the the hippie myth bit is really the bit between it escaping from the military-industrial complex before it goes into the corporate
0: complex. There was this moment.
2: Yeah. It was a brief moment, which you loved. Yeah. We all loved. <laughs> but the, the thing is, actually, it's more subversive now, the Internet, than it's ever been 20 years ago.
0: Well, subversive in what sense? In the sense that, that Russians can hack American elections? Or? No, no,
2: the fact that we almost destroyed the Conservative Party in this last election. And that was, you know, it was Facebook which did it. You know, if anything... The mo- that, Okay, so we, to, ex- to explain to American right. listeners, so we've just had a general election. And at the beginning of uh, when it was called about, and it, we don't have two-year elections like in America, we have seven-week elections. The Labour Party was 20 points behind in the opinion polls. And the, almost the entire media is, absolutely hates the, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, because he's a socialist. I know this is shocking to Americans. But like was, Bernie. Uh, yeah, he's to the left of Bernie. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a proper socialist. Uh-huh. I mean, Bernie's a socialist. He's a good, you know. Right. Well, he's like Eugene Debs. I like right. anyone who likes Eugene Debs is good enough for me, uh, and he's democratic Socialist of America. Very good group of people. Okay, so but he's like to the left of that basically. So he's our leader, and and all the mainstream media hate him. All the Tory media, right wing media, and the liberal left, which media. was very confusing. I and mean, we were uh, and just the, talking about that before. The
0: Guardian hated him. I'll why would the, would the oh, Guardian?
2: They, of course, they hated. Why him. would they hate him? Because he's a socialist, and they're liberals. Yeah. The Guardian
0: what? is supposed to be No, it's not. It's the left paper.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's why they hate him because he he's gone beyond their they're called the Guardian because they guard the, the what's it permissible to be how far left you can go. <laughs> and the BBC, which is supposed to be the state broadcaster, it's public service broadcasting, is supposed to be balanced. and their idea of balance is to have like three Tories and one Blairite. That is a right wing Labour. So we had all the media against us, and yet we managed to go, we, we got to, we're now, we got from being 20% behind to 2% behind, and instead of having a, a Tory winning a landslide, they've now got a minority government. Yeah, and we will fall to pieces next year, and within a year, Jeremy Corbyn will be the most popular politician, and we're going to come to power on the most left-wing program since 1945 within the next 18 months. And, and isn't that,
0: that partly uh, a reaction to Trump and Brexit? And no, all that?
2: no, it's to do it's to do with the fact that people have smartphones, and the, the fact that you know you can you you know people are doing blogs, people are doing Facebook posts. We made a game. Another friend, another guy I know, made a film. Uh, which you know, say uh, okay, we made a game for, for, called Corbyn Run for the election campaign. It got 1.6 million impressions. Right, I mean nothing we did 20 years ago had only got anywhere near that sort of impact. This guy who uh, called Bonnie Prince Bob. Who's a Scot? He did a, f- a sort of science fiction film set in the future about the great Corbyn government. It's very funny. You you will prove that, especially under a, a left-wing Labour government, everybody has to, every parliamentarian has to take DMT to make sure they have empathy with the population. <laughs> it's got very. It's a very funny. It's called Jeremy Bernard Corbyn. What was done? Right. It's a very funny film. He got a million views of this
0: film. But why does social media work? Toward these, you know, progressive and leftist they coherent s- aims in England, but in the States, it feels as if social media is just this weaponized mimetics, this destabilizing force. That that the more time we spend in social media spaces, the less coherent we are, the less we can make choices, the more uh, we revert to our almost reptilian, automatic, fear-based uh, activities.
2: Whereas here we just laugh at it. Humor was a big thing on the left here. So this game is funny. The film is funny. There were lots and lots of memes, like little graphics for people were making. But there's also people who do very serious things. So they, what what's most interesting? They they, they actually had a, a thing of what was a, a, a statistic of what was the most shared article on the internet during the election, and the top the top two came from a blogger in New Yorkshire called Another Angry Voice. The top two, and out of the, and and down below comes things like the Guardian, the Independent, the BBC. So the Canary Squawk Box. There's this whole like plethora of these little blogger-type things, and they they are actually now uh, they're getting more views, more shares than mainstream media.
0: But why, but why now, if, if just a year ago, Cambridge Analytica and all that money can send out memes and get England to vote against its best interests and Brexitize itself, mm-hmm. uh, apparently in the same style that America went for Trump, mm. what's different now? In other words, why is the internet suddenly the, the friend of, uh, of progressive thought?
2: There's something, yeah, it's something to do with the Brexit campaign itself, because you have to understand there wasn't a left voice in it. The Brexit, obviously the Brexit, pro-Brexit people were essentially the right wing of the Tory party. There was a small slither of Trotskyists who thought that England should become Cuba with worse weather. Yeah. Yeah, but basically they they had no voice in it, uh, and then on the on the pro remain the pro EU one, it was run by Blairites, the right wing Labour Party, and the, the the then government. So a lot of it was just like an up yours of the government. Uh, a friend of, uh, a friend of mine who is who's a bus driver voted to leave because he hated the prime minister's posh accent. So that's the only reason. He, I mean, you know, he just did it up your... Though I did have an anarchist friend who said he voted leave because he wanted to fuck the system. And I told I told him, well, you're probably the only person who's going to be satisfied with the outcome of the Brexit re- referendum <laughs> because the, the, Brexit's never going to happen. So the pro-Brexiteers are all going to be disappointed and the Remain people are all in trauma because it, they're going to have to go through the, this thing, you know, all this crisis until... Brexit doesn't happen. Whereas my anarchist friend just is enjoying the chaos.
0: <laughs> well, chaos indeed. So you don't think Brexit will actually happen? I don't think it's possible.
2: We could have Bino. Do you know Bino? No. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a children's comic here. B E A N O, but B I N O is Brexit in name only, where we pretend to leave the European Union, but we're still in it. That's basically what's happened after this election because they were going to do what's called a hard Brexit right. where we were going to suddenly be sh- declare independence of the EU and we we're going to g- go back to 1900 when Britain ruled the waves and we had coll- it was Empire 2.0, I yeah. think it's jokingly Good called. luck with that. Um, and everybody, we we're going to be the free trade capital of the world and all this bollocks. But that's not going to happen anymore. I mean, I, I, I think that went out the window in the election. So then they say, "Oh well, we have to be a member of the customs union, single market." So once you do that, you may as well stay a member. I assume that's what's going to happen. It, it, it was a sort of, it was a sort of fantasy moment. It was a bit like when they fired on Fort Sumter in eighteen sixty-one. Right. <laughs> they had all these what they were called fire fire eaters, weren't they? The the secessionists in the south. Mm-hmm. And they just like this small minority. And they basically, prov- you know, when they ma- managed to get to the stage where they provoke secession, in which case, four years later, Sherman's army came to liberate Charleston.
0: <laughs> but you seem, uh, I don't know, rather sanguine about, about all this. In some ways, I saw, I, I, I originally experienced you as the guy who said, Doug, you got to pay attention to some of the, the bigger picture here. Um,
2: I'm not sanguine about it. I'm just realistic. I realize, you know, it's not.
0: But you're not apocalyptic.
2: Why should we be apocalyptic? Because
0: maybe it's all, <laughs> we're just destroying yeah, the planet. Oh, <laughs> and, because have Mr. Trump. Well, even before Mr. Trump, we had, we have serious. Ronald uh,
2: Reagan, the president's brain is yeah. missing. Well, and he had George W. Bush. The Republican Party just managed to produce amazing candidates for president.
0: And then they elect him. Yeah. And we're still, you know, in, enslaving millions of people. We're still pumping millions of gallons of toxic things into our environment.
2: You're still stuck in the 1960s or 50s. Probably. This is strange, America. It's like my mother. My mother. See, I went I have to explain. When I was a small child, I lived in America for a year in the 1960s. So which are the only things I can remember about this thing in my school. I could eat ice cream every day, even though it was minus five outside. Yeah. That's centigrade, I have to say Celsius, I have to say. Not uh, whatever, whatever, what, what, whatever temperature. Fahrenheit, yes, I'm trying to think what it is. Fahrenheit you used, don't you? Um, so, but she said, well, when, when they went to America in the 60s, 1960, it looked like the future. It was Everything was bigger and richer and everything, you know, and one more wonderful, and now you go to America and it looks like the past, which is strange. In 50 years, it's gone from being the future to being, it's been overtaken. I mean, I have Chinese friends who said this, you know, that they went to America in, you know, I'm sorry, they went sort of 1980s and they were just thinking this was what communism was supposed to be, you know, where everybody has a house and they have televisions and they have cars and, you know, everyone's got the vote and civil liberties. Now they go there and they go, ha, ha, ha. They don't even have one kilometre of high-speed rail.
0: <laughs> right. And things
2: like this, you know.
0: Well, we built the dream that we thought we wanted, you know, the Levittown uh, FDR New Deal yeah. dream happened and they we did.
2: ended up but he didn't you he didn't carry on evolving. Right. So this means the next you know it's easy. I mean I mean, obviously England has got some lots of problems. But if you compare America to say Northern Europe, you know, like Germany, Scandinavia, it does seem very backward.
0: Oh, it does. And it not only is it backward, but our people are voting to bring it back. We're even more. Well, some of, them, great again. some of them. I
2: think the real thing which comes out of this election we had here is a lot of people don't vote because they see no choice. And one of the things we did in this election is prove if you offer. Them a left wing choice. Surprise, surprise! Large numbers of people will turn up to vote for the first time. Not just young people, because there's this thing now. It's a, oh, it's the young people. They bribed them by offering them oh, free, the millennial free, vote, yeah. yeah, free tuition. You know, they know you abolish tuition free fees and whatever. You know, we're offering them all these freebies. You know, free money. But actually, it's not. It goes right up to people in their forties, and it's and it's because people who just thought. That why bother voting? I mean, I, I canvassed in the twenty ten election when the Labour Party was still basically Blairite, right? and people would say you're all the fucking same. You know, I mean, and they were true. It's like which neoliberal do you want? Do you want a slightly pink neoliberal? Do you want a sort of centrist neoliberal or a, or a conservative neoliberal? But he's three types of neoliberal. As the an anarchists would say, whoever you vote for, the government gets in. Or neoliberalism. And now now we've got to a stage where you can start to offer with people like Jeremy Corbyn's wing of the Labour Party here or Bernie Sanders in America. You can actually start to say to people, there is a choice. You don't have to put up with this shit anymore. And you know there are these democratic mechanisms, and if enough of you go out and vote, you can change the system. Particularly if you don't think it's just about voting, but actually you have to get involved at a community level, in all in your trade unions, making culture, all the rest of it. And that's actually what powers it forward, because there's no way you know a few hundred. Labour MPs controlling the House of Commons are going to change this country. But if we have already 750,000 members of the Labour Party and millions of people voting for it, and you actually mobilise them, then neoliberalism would
0: collapse tomorrow. And that is what's starting to happen in the states too. Though now yeah. we're getting thousands of people, you know, volunteering yeah. women to run for yeah. office who've yeah. never considered it before. People joining parties. People. Uh, joining uh, labor unions, credit unions. Exactly. Uh, we need uh, to
2: rebuild all that. I mean, they del- the neoliberals deliberately smashed all this up. And a lot of the left just ran around, because mainly because they were obsessed with things like identity politics, you know, me, 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 I'm the most oppressed. And you, what, what you do, have to do is rediscover class unity.
0: The, the right wing is playing identity politics too. Oh, the, no, they, they're Trump's the, people
2: are... They're the, are, the best at identity yeah. politics. They love identity politics. It's not surprising that Richard Spencer embraces identity politics, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's what happens if you go down that route. Well, it feels like the one thing you really can't change is
0: class, finally, though.
2: No, and it is about class. I mean, really, it, you know, I was in, very involved in radical politics in the 1980s here, and we were pioneers a lot of this stuff about, uh, you know, we were very focused on things like, multi, multi, you know, this is a multi-ethnic, multicultural city. Let's celebrate immigration. You know, my son, is, uh, his mother is an immigrant. You know, uh, this is this is a you know this is where all everybody it's the original city called the melting pot actually, and is is London is the original melting pot. Um, so this is, you know, this this is something to celebrate. We got absolutely monstered by the Tory media because we said respect our gay brothers and lesbian sisters. And things like people with disabilities, all these other. But the purpose of it wasn't to create little separate groups all going, I'm more oppressed. But actually, to unite them together to stop people being divided over race. You know, so white, you know, we had a very strong fascist movement here in the 1970s, and it was trying to do that, saying, you know, put, petting white workers against black workers. And we see it now with Brexit. You know, you know, white people, actually one group of white people hating another usually because it's Poles, you know, they, now they hate Poles and Latvians, you know. It's so <laughs> think thing I never
0: understood about fascism, why they even call it that, because the, the, the word fascism yeah. is all the different strands coming together into one... Into one thing, shouldn't well, fascism be multicultural?
2: Well, that's because it was in the le- the fasces was originally a symbol of the left. When it, in it well, obviously it's originally the Roman Republic, but the oh. fasces, as you as you point out, which is lots of sticks stuck together, was adopted as a symbol first in the French Republic, and then later, particularly in Italy, where he got it from, it was about work, things like peasant unions mm-hmm. were called fasces. So, but he you have to understand he started on the extreme left Mussolini Mussolini, Mussolini was the leader right. of the left of the of the Italian socialist party a bit like lenin he started <laughs> on the extreme left and ended up as a as a as a dictator as a fascist yeah.
0: <laughs> in the in the yeah you
2: know, i always say well, that's what was it Lev landau that was his famous quote which is that lenin was the first fascist and he meant that that starting on the radical left and then by seizing state power, it become, precisely because you come from the radical left, you, you're not constrained by bourgeois democracy, liberalism, and therefore you end up being more right wing.
0: So, for the most part, though, would you see digital technology as a distraction from the basic real world community building that we need to do in order to? No, no, no it's, achieve a power? it's
2: a tool. It's a tool. I mean, I was, I say, I'm old enough to have lived in the world of analog technology, right. And I always feel like it, the technology's actually caught up with us. So this uh, f- this uh, friend of mine, who's the opposition finance, John, John McDonnell, is basically the number two of the Labour Party here. And we worked together on community radio broadcasting when he, when the left ran the council, Labour left run the London Council, Greater London Council, and we set up community radio station. And we used to, uh, we've been. You know, we, I've been reading lots of stuff about France and Italy. We used to talk about building the electronic agora. Agora electronique. Uh-huh. And, and the idea was you somehow, you know, obviously, because we, you know, we're, we're in a social democratic party, we're electing people to be councillors. But the idea is how do you mobilise the people outside, you know, your voters, your party members. And it seemed like community radio was a way of breaking the spectacle. You know, not so it's not just us sending messages downwards through the media to the masses but the 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 the, the people can actually Start to run their own lives, and that's the. It that seems to me that's the importance of any left political project. It's not just to replace one bunch of bureaucrats with another bunch of bureaucrats, but actually to shift power and wealth from the few to the many,
0: as we said in our slogan. <laughs> right, which is why the net seemed to do that, at least on the surface. But it, but it doesn't. From a technolo- television. The,
2: t- to- but the technology doesn't do it by itself. Yeah, the technology is a tool. And we fight over that tool. As you say, the corporations will try and make it into one thing. We want to make it into another. And as I said, it's interesting that, you know, if you even look at something like, you know, Facebook, which is, you know, know, one of the biggest corporations now, uh, it provided a platform for people to actually... Bypass the Tory media the BBC the BBC and the Tory and the Guardian it's just we hate Corbyn we hate the left blah 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 you know, don't vote for them we want a Tory landslide I mean you have to understand the Guardian wanted the Tories to win big because then their friends would retake over the Labour Party and they will all be nice and safe and neoliberal again. The Hillary Clintons. Right. They even have a woman called Yvette Cooper, who is basically Hillary Clinton. Right, the same way the New a York Young Times lover. wanted
0: Hillary yeah. And, yeah. and would not want to understand Bernie. Bernie didn't get no, they No, they preferred Trump to Bernie. Right. But well, they and certainly and, preferred Hillary to Bernie. No, no, they preferred Trump as well. Well, for their...
2: No, what they Bottom want, they, you know, it's like the French, recent French presidential election. What they want is, you know, they want a, 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 a sort of a, a social neoliberal against a fascist neoliberal. That's their perfect election, where most of the left are then forced to vote for the less awful neoliberal. But you don't have a choice. You have to vote neoliberal. What they don't want is a socialist. That's really what they do. because once, once you have a choice between socialism and neoliberalism, the socialists could win, and then suddenly they they might have to pay more taxes.
0: But <laughs> as you but as you as you expose me to in books like uh, Science of Coercion, yeah, yeah. which you sent me, and uh, uh, a number of others, uh, neoliberalism is embedded in in America's uh, and I suppose Europe's too. But but America's uh, uh, internationalist movement. Of the '50s, '60s, and '70s. Well, it actually came later because originally
2: it was a sort of Fordist movement. You have to think originally they were in favour of big government, big government and big business were allied together, and they started to separate really in the 1970s, 80s, when basically Wall Street reasserted itself. You have to, so the fight, obviously, in up to the 1914, the First World War, capitalism. Particularly, it's Anglo Saxon, as the French would say, versions, was dominated by the banks. Right. Okay, yeah. You know, if you read Marx's Capital, it's all about how the, you know, the interest rate of, <laughs> in, yeah. in the city of London is a determining fact, regulating fact. But then between with the First World War and the Second World War, you get this big government being a key part. So if you look at the sort of writings of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and really into the 70s, really what they want is this sort of enlightened bureaucracy working with the corporate. And in fact, lots of the corporations are seen as quasi-state. You know, yeah, well, just, yeah,
0: back with the National Association of Manufacturers. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. And, yeah.
2: and then that yeah. breaks down and you get this reassertion of Wall Street, what, because the
0: investors that's... were more powerful than the corporations themselves at that point.
2: Well, it's also because they wanted to create a global system. And if you want to have a global system, right. you can't have Ameri- an American... I mean, I know America has various failed attempts to invade countries like Vietnam and Iraq so it doesn't really want to directly run it so if you have to you know if America had a next Europe right. and we were voting in your presidential election that the big government may have stepped on but if you want to have a global system it, you have to shift it away from the state to the banks and now the banks become a regulatory system for a globe and that is the shift that goes on. And the internet fitted with that, that I California ideology, because you suddenly say, Oh, the state is terrible, even though the internet is entirely created. Right, by, or John listen. Barlow
0: saying governments of the world get off our net. This well, is for us.
2: Which is you know? which the governments of the world had created for Right. It. Nowhere
0: <laughs> in there does he say corporations of the world get off the net. No,
2: no. So then then in bank big business and big banks become the new way of regular. And of course, the other advantage is, is no one elects the head of a bank or a corporation. And so you can see, I mean, you can see this in the, you know, part, you know, like I said a lot of the Brexit vote was, you know, imperial, imperial nostalgia and racism. But part of it was this fear, was this dislike of the way that that neoliberalism basically removes democracy. So if you want to unite Europe, for instance... You know, you don't okay. Instead of having a European Parliament, which we all vote members of, and then that vote, you know, that then creates a European government, which is somehow accountable to the people. What you do is you create marketization, because then the unification process is controlled by corporations and banks, which obviously are accountable to no one, except to their shareholders, uh, and they and they
0: shit on the rest of us. So then, why or how does Russia? End up on that side. Russia was originally the communists.
2: Why? when
0: when Israel wanted to partner with them on the Kibbutzes, <laughs> when uh, uh, they
2: wanted to join the West, didn't they? That's what the KGB always wanted to do. They, you know, it's not surprising that the KGB, Yuri Andropov, you know, Gorbachev. Putin, they're all, they're, that's what they came out of. they come out of the people who'd gone to the West and thought, well, why can't we be like that? Why can't we join them? Putin was brought into power to get Russia ready to join the EU. And we so s- pissed him off, he has gone and joined the Chinese instead. They wanted to be part of the West. He's the most pro-Western leader since probably Lenin or Peter the Great when he came to power.
0: And how did we piss him off?
2: Because the Americans didn't want him to be part of the West,
0: wouldn't it have increased American Western power? Uh, haven't,
2: well, no, because they were afraid that Russia and Germany would come together, isn't it? It's Halford Mackinder. They will read the geographical pivot of history. If you read, I mean, you know, whether you take it any seriously as a theory, but it's very influential in the American foreign policy establishment. You know, the the the. the, the have you read this? Mm-mm. Oh right. So he has this. So he he was a geographer. He wrote before the First World War, and says if you look at the, a map of the world, the 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 world the basically the centre of the world is Eurasia, yeah. That's the centre, mm-hmm. and then you have what's called rim nations. Well, it got uh, uh, yeah, which is like Britain as a as a sea by nation, and then of course then later America, yeah. So what they're afraid of is the unification of Eurasia, and then America is on the wrong side of the world. So you have to split Europe from Russia. That, that's If you read some of their stuff, that was... Ever, of course, the funny thing is they've actually pushed the Russians into the hands of the Chinese. The Chinese can't believe their luck at the stupidity of American geopolitics, because what they want to do is build across... Obviously, they want to build this Silk
0: Road across Eurasia. So then, Trump by trying to partner with Russia, in spite of their failings, the the is point. a correct move. Yeah, but
2: it's too late now. The the, 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 America, the I think, it's a much more short-term thing. The American political establishment need an excuse to build all those useless F thirty-five airplanes. It's a boondoggle, isn't it? It's all money. Right. It's just a shakedown money from the American taxpayer. So you need an enemy, and really, Al Qaeda, despite its best efforts of the Saudis and. An Islamic state aren 't really an enemy because if you actually made any effort on them, you can wipe them out whereas russia isn 't like a quite a big country they they 've never forgiven the Russians for not being commies anymore. That was the worst thing they could possibly have done is take down the ha- red flag and a hammer and sickle. Yeah, they'd love for us. You know, if they declared that they were Stalinist again and they put up the flag and all started doing May Day marches, the whole American foreign policy establishment would run around cheering in
0: the sky, wouldn't they? Yeah, now all we've got is Islam. Which is not,
2: yeah, which... Well, no, 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 Wahhabism. They're not Islam because most Muslims absolutely loathe these people.
0: Yeah, I know. Because
2: they're the number one <laughs> target of them. So yeah. all Shia hate them, and uh, all Sufis, uh, Sufis in the Sunni tradition hate them. They were Habis. I, I, uh, my, you know, during the siege of East Aleppo, the recent siege of East Aleppo, which the West was supposed to, we were all supposed to be, had, be crying tears for these poor people being besieged. And I have a lot of Muslim students whose parents come from South Asia, Middle East. And how, ma- how many of them supported the rebels in Syria? guess. Out of oh zero. They were all pro-Assad, which mm. I find is a bit scary, given I used to work with, uh, in the 90s I worked with this socialist who'd been tortured by the, Assad, the Assad's father's regime. He was a Syrian refugee here. But they all all the Muslim students were just like, killed the whole fucking lot of them. No mercy.
0: <laughs> and is it because they're the wealthy no, 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 they're poor,
2: they're working class English Muslims. You know, they're just fed up with all this Islamophobia they're faced with and these crazy people committing terrorist atrocity. And as far as they're concerned, they're Saudis. <laughs> They'd happily string up the entire Saudi royal family, probably personally, from the nearest lab post. Do
0: you think there's a a, a a compelling reason for working class Americans mm. to understand geopolitical, geopolitical scene or is it enough for them to get involved locally and improve their local economies be less dependent on global supply chains and corporations obviously, obviously he said
2: wars are the, are the way of teaching americans geography well you have to be i mean you're a long way i mean the thing is, is you know america is the biggest island in the world it's a long way from everyone else and most americans don't have passports so mm. you know but you you are the global superpower so americans have to be interested in it You know, again, you know, you say the Muslims as if they're a homogeneous group. I mean, they don't have a pope. You know, this is the most, you know, I mean, they're even more squabbling than the the Protestants or the Jews. You know, there's like there's dozens and dozens of different types of
0: Islam. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, No, there are dozens of kinds of communism. I mean, but it's still Islam now serves as I'm just saying it serves as the the word uh, to have an enemy for. But they're not
2: really serious. But the Russian Soviet Union was a serious enemy. That was a proper enemy. I mean, actually, it actually had, like, military power and nuclear weapons and, and you know, was organizing revolutions or supporting revolutions in, in the South. I mean, you, you know, Al-Qaeda is a bunch of few thousand Saudi-funded nutcases. And ditto Islamic State.
0: But if you had a, a metric for measuring American fear of a people and an idea... It's quite possible that the level of fear of Al Qaeda or ISIS is as high as it was of Russia back in the 60s.
2: Well, they managed in one terrorist atrocity to to probably kill more people inside America than anyone had for a very long time. Mm. I mean, that's the key thing. But I mean, that was a long, long time ago. And anyway, you didn't go and attack Saudi Arabia, who was most of them were Saudis. That's what everyone in all the conspiracy theorists you think there's a field day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Al Qaeda was set up by the CIA. Let us not forget. I, was, I got a, I got a mini, I had a, a mini cab driver once who was an Afghan refugee, and as he was driving me home, he said, he said, I met Osama Bin Laden when we were both working for the CIA, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm glad you said that. Not me. <laughs> he was in a different faction, but he was actually an Afghan, so. But that again, that's that, that sort of complication. It's like. You know, you get into this world of conspiracy theories and tinfoil hatting. So that's the other problem. You know, if there is, people are interested in geopolitics in America, but there's so much disinformation. You know, the one thing they've learned, the the, the establishment in the deep state, I think they call it nowadays, uh, the deep state's learned is to produce lots of disinformation. To yeah, catch, to hide the hide, hide what the real things in plain sight are.
0: Right, which makes it hard to to follow the global news. And there and isn't any global news sleep. in
2: America. There isn't.
0: Right, and what am I supposed to do? Read my Guardian updates? Which now you're telling me the Guardian's not even the Guardian anymore.
2: It's well, it just reproduces the NATO line on Syria and Ukraine. Right, anyway, the effort of Syria was appalling, and <laughs> and also Ukraine was terrible as well. I mean. Again, you don't have to like Putin. I mean, I would be—he was, a, you know, he's an authoritarian conservative. But to just demonise this country, uh, to to then start apologising for rather disturbing, happy headchoppers in Syria—it seems to me a bit of a strange position to take if you claim to be a liberal paper.
0: So, where would you send people to get their global information?
2: Well, you just have to browse the internet and have a look. Not info wars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not Alex no.
2: Jones? No? No, Doug Rushkoff, I'm oh, sure there you, you go. there. You have to provide it.
0: At least you'll if you come to me, you'll get honest honest confusion. confusion. <laughs> well,
2: that's a good start. <laughs> well, that was Karl Marx's motto, was doubt everything. That's probably the first place <laughs> you should start. Oh good. Well certainly if it's published in the New York Times you should definitely doubt it. It's probably a lie. <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. This is Stephen here. It's been another great week of support coming through our new Patreon campaign. I'd like to thank all of our new supporters. Again, a reminder that patrons have exclusive access to our Team Human Slack channel. There are a number of interesting conversations going on alongside the show over at Slack. Again, go to
1: patreon.com teamhuman to support the show and join the Slack channel. Membership cards will soon be mailed out. I'd like to thank our friends at Zago who generously
0: designed the cards for us. Check out teamhuman.fm to learn about the music you heard on the show, more details about this episode, and ways to get involved. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human our last best hope for peeps.